Our Father, as we uh, consider where we are today, as we consider how the gospel has gone forth for the last 2,000 years and in the greatest strength in the past 504 years, Lord, we sit in awe of your sovereign majesty, of your plan, because it is the faithfulness of men and women to proclaim the true biblical gospel through every generation that ultimately led to each of us being here. That someone proclaimed the true gospel to us, the gospel from the Bible. And for those who proclaimed the gospel to us, others proclaimed the gospel to them and going back generation after generation. And so we give you thanks for your faithfulness to your own word. We give you thanks for the power of the gospel. We give you thanks for Christ. We give you thanks for all who have gone before us in faithfulness that we look forward to meeting someday, Lord, in heaven. Would you be with us this day, Lord, as we look to your word, as we consider what it means to know and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we praise you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the year was 1609, just about a century or so, 90 years or so after what we just saw depicted. And this saw the passing of an era in 1609. The Dutch theologian and seminary professor Jacob Arminius died at the young age of 49. And the next year in 1610, his followers, who came to be known as Arminians, they drew up what they called the five articles of faith based on the teaching of Arminius. Now, just remember that in this era, so early after the Great Reformation, the church and the government, especially local governments, were very much tied together. And so the Arminians presented these five articles of faith to the state of Holland in what was called a remonstrance, meaning a protest. They requested that the Heidelberg Catechism, which was the official doctrinal position of the Church of Holland, that the Heidelberg Catechism be altered to reflect these five articles of faith. Now, before I tell you what these five articles of faith were, let's talk about what was behind them from a philosophical standpoint. There were a few major driving ideas that that took the Arminians to these five articles of faith. First of all, the idea that divine sovereignty is incompatible with human freedom. That divine sovereignty and human freedom can't go together. Divine sovereignty must be separate from human responsibility. They also viewed faith in Christ as a completely free and responsible act, and so it couldn't be caused by God. It had to be exercised by man and man alone, independent of God. And one more driving idea behind their five articles of faith is that since faith can only be exercised by man, then the ability to generate, the ability to have, the ability to express saving faith must be universal to everyone. Every single human being has exactly the same ability. And so based on those ideas or those philosophical positions, the Arminians sent both to the state of Holland and to the Church of Holland these five articles of faith, which came to be known as the five points of Arminianism. Here they are. The first point we'll just call free will. Under free will, they said that while human nature was most definitely seriously damaged by sin, by the fall of mankind into sin, that doesn't mean other spiritual helplessness. There's still some power. 
that while God enables every person to be able to repent and believe, he doesn't interfere with man's freedom. And they held to a form of grace which says that every human being is capable of making the choice to come to faith in Christ. And so your eternal destiny depends on your use of free will. The second point of Arminianism we would call conditional election. Conditional election says that God chose before the foundation of the world all that he foresaw would choose him by their own free will. That election is determined by what mankind does and that the ultimate cause of salvation is the sinner's choice of Christ, not God's choice of the sinner. One of the pastors that discipled me as a young man said that uh, conditional election is like throwing the dart at a wall then drawing the circle around it and saying, I got a bullseye. The third point of Arminianism, we could call unlimited atonement. Unlimited atonement or general atonement. That Christ's redeeming work at the cross made it theoretically possible for all people to be saved. But listen carefully, his work at the cross didn't actually secure salvation for anyone in particular. Christ's redemption goes into effect only if a person chooses to accept it. The fourth point of Arminianism, they said, was that mankind may resist the Spirit's call to salvation. Mankind may resist the Spirit's call to salvation that all who hear the gospel outwardly are called inwardly by the Spirit to salvation also, but man may resist, may push back, may may thwart the Spirit's call. That despite the best efforts of the Spirit of God, mankind may resist They would say that a man must have faith on his own before the Spirit will regenerate him. So faith comes before the rebirth, the new birth of mankind through salvation. So faith must come first, then regeneration comes second. The grace of God is defeatable. It can be defeated by the willful rebellion of the hearer of the gospel. And the fifth point of Arminianism that they presented to the state of Holland and the church of Holland that it is possible to fall from grace. It is possible to fall from grace and to lose one's salvation. That by failing to keep the commandments or by walking away from Christ, a regenerate, a born-again person can become unregenerate, unborn again, so to speak. Now, to be fair, not all Arminians agree on that fifth point. There are many who hold that regeneration is eternal. But that's not my point to go into that this morning. So that was the content of the remonstrance, the protest that the Arminians sent the state of Holland and the church of Holland in 1610. In 1618, a national synod, a church council was called in Dort to examine the views of the Arminians, which was gaining a ton of popularity in the church. Now remember, the church and the state are closely connected, and so this council, it convened on November 13, 1618, And it was made up of 84 Dutch delegates. It included 18 secular government officials who were believers in Christ. But it also included 27 delegates from the various German states before there was a unified Germany, Switzerland, England, and Scotland. Now you might say, well, that's nice. They got together and had a meeting. This wasn't a weekend getaway. This was 154 meetings over seven months. And they studied and studied and studied the word of God. At their final session on May the 9th, 1619, the council concluded 
that the teachings of the Armenians were completely contrary to Scripture, and this is their word, not mine, and they declared these five articles to be heresy. Now, this may seem odd to us because Arminianism is basically the default position of American evangelicalism today. And so it seems odd. This is the majority position of the Southern Baptist Convention. Other large denominations, generally speaking, are Arminian. But the Council of Dort, taking months to study the scriptures, declared these five articles heresy. They declared that salvation in Christ is a work of total grace from beginning to end, that mankind did nothing to contribute to his own salvation in any way whatsoever, that mankind was spiritually dead, incapable, incapable of a godly spiritual choice and in total bondage to sin and Satan. They declared that the ability to believe the gospel, that ability, that faith was in and of itself a gift of God, given by God's favor and for no other reason. Certainly not by the merits of a person. But rather than just play good defense, that's not all the Council of Dort did. They didn't want to merely reject the five articles of Arminianism. They decided to answer them. And because their answers had already been clearly defined by the great reformer John Calvin, they used the term Calvinism to define their answer to the five heretical articles of Arminianism. And in answer to each of the five points, They gave what ever since that time has become known as the five points of Calvinism. Total depravity or total inability, unconditional election, limited atonement or particular redemption, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints, which of course came to spell the famous acronym of Calvinism, TULIP. Since today is the 504th anniversary of the day Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the Wittenberg church door, sparking the firestorm of the Great Reformation, I'd like to review for all of us what I've called the flower of the Reformation or the flower of salvation, which, of course, is the five points of Calvinism. And we have a text in Scripture which actually outlines in one place all five points. I'd like to have you turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, And we'll look together at verses 13 through 17, 2 Thessalonians 2. The Apostle Paul is writing a follow-up letter to his first letter to this young church at Thessalonica. And in this second letter, he gives a masterful summary of the doctrines of grace, grace, the, the basis of salvation from sin. And in just a few sentences, he highlights these five points. Total depravity or total inability, unconditional election, limited atonement or particular redemption, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. Let's read this text together and then we'll uh, bask in these wonderful truths. Verse 13, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal hope, eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Let's just be reminded of the gospel and walk through the flower of the Reformation or the flower of salvation. First, let's look at total depravity. Total depravity 
is what we might call the bad news of the gospel. Total depravity says that because of Adam's sin, all mankind is born in sin, and we are by our very nature spiritually dead. And so if someone is to enter into the kingdom of God, he must first be made alive spiritually. And this, this can't happen of his own choice any more than a dead man can choose to make any choices. A dead man cannot choose to resurrect himself. Now, total depravity is taught more indirectly here in this text because of one of the key words in God's plan of salvation, which indicates here that total depravity exists. It must exist logically. The key word is at the end of verse 16, that we are saved through grace. And so the question is, how do total depravity and grace fit together? How does the need for grace indicate total depravity? Well, grace is the core foundation of every facet of our salvation from sin. In the Old Testament, one particular Hebrew word speaks of an action from a superior to an inferior without any claim for gracious treatment whatsoever, no, no merits. It's an act of a kindly manner. It means the heartfelt response by someone who has something to give to someone who needs that something. The most common Old Testament word for grace is translated loving kindness or mercy or steadfast love or favor. And it has a strong covenantal emphasis that the stronger one has made a covenant with the weaker and the weaker has done nothing to merit that covenant. In the New Testament, the concept of grace speaks of showing unmerited favor, undeserved kindness. It can mean to pardon the guilty of their sin. Now, why did we need grace? We needed grace because like every human being since Adam and Eve, we are lawbreakers. We have missed the mark. This is a concept that the English Bible translates with the word sin. That we were estranged from God. God was rightly furious with us, furious with our sin. And we were headed toward rightful justice at the hand of God himself. Jesus said in John 3, 6, that which is born of flesh is flesh. Meaning that Adam's sin has been passed from generation to generation to generation, culminating in us. And we willfully violated God's purposes and standards from the time we were old enough to make basic decisions to know right from wrong, or as Isaiah 7.16 says, old enough to refuse the evil and choose the good. And the Arminian might say, aha, there was a point where you're old enough to choose the good. Problem, nobody ever has. No one chooses the good. Have you ever seen a two and a half year old say, father, I know that this cupcake that you have said not to eat is before me, but I choose the good. No, the minute you turn your head, you, oh, it's in there. They always choose the bad. If we were not under total depravity, under an utter spiritual deadness and inability, then grace wouldn't be necessary. Grace wouldn't be grace. It would be a team effort between God and man. Now, Arminians say, sure, humanity is depraved, but there's still just enough spiritual power to be able to choose God. Let me give you six reasons that there is no power, that you are completely incapable of choosing God in need of grace. First reason you were incapable of choosing God, you were spiritually dead. You were spiritually dead. Sin entered into the world through Adam, and you inherited it. And listen carefully, the Bible does not define your sin nature as some sort of impediment or handicap or disability or detriment that can be overcome with enough effort. 
the Bible defines this inheritance from Adam as death. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. What was the state of your soul? Ephesians 2.1, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Colossians 2.13, You were dead in your trespasses. The, the word dead is the Greek word nekros and Here are all the nuances of definitions of the ways necros is used in the New Testament. It means to be in a state of loss of life. It can mean to be so morally or spiritually deficient as to be in effect dead. That's a figurative extension of the state of loss of life. It means having never been alive and lacking capacity for life. Dead, lifeless. It means one who is no longer physically alive. A dead person, a dead body, a corpse. It can mean one who is so spiritually obtuse as to be, in effect, dead. In fact, Jesus used necros in that manner when he said in Matthew 8, 22, leave the dead to bury their own dead. It means unable, ineffective, powerless, without life, a corpse. Necros is used 128 times in the New Testament, and at no time does it ever mean partially able. Or I can still do something that alive people can do. The second reason you were incapable of choosing God, you had a blind mind. You had a blind mind. Romans 8, 7 and 8, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In Titus 1.15, to the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. How about Ephesians 4.17 and 18 that speaks of the Gentiles having a futility in their minds. They're darkened in understanding. They're alienated from the life of God. They're ignorant of all the things that are holy. There's a third reason you were incapable of choosing God. You had a corrupted heart. You had a corrupted heart. Genesis 6.5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Genesis 8.21, God said the intention of man's heart is from his youth, is evil from his youth. Ecclesiastes 9.3, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts. Jeremiah 17.9, God says the heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately sick. It's a word that means mortally wounded, terminal. Jesus himself affirmed in Mark 7, verses 21 and 23, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts and they defile a person. There's a fourth reason you were incapable of choosing God. You were a slave of sin. You were a slave of sin. John 8, 34, anyone, everyone rather who commits sin is a slave to sin. Romans 6, 20, you were slaves of sin. Titus 3, verse 3, you were slaves to various passions and pleasures. In other words, you can't free yourself. There's a fifth reason you were incapable of choosing God. You were a child of Satan. You were a child of Satan. John 8, 44, you are of your father, the devil, 
And your will is to do your father's desires. Did you catch that? Because the devil was your father, that was what you wanted to do, was whatever he wanted you to do. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. You followed Satan. In 1 John 3, 10, you were children of the devil. One more reason you were incapable of choosing God, you were unable to change. You were unable to change. You had no ability. Mankind in his own power is incapable of repenting, incapable of believing the gospel, incapable of willingly coming to Christ for forgiveness. You couldn't change your nature. You certainly couldn't prepare yourself for salvation. Job 14, verse 4, the rhetorical question is asked, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one. You don't go to your laundry hamper and stick your hand down in there and suddenly pull out a perfectly clean shirt. Jeremiah 13.23 asks the question, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. In John 6.44, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. He reiterated, 21 verses later, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So you were spiritually dead. You had a blind mind. You had a corrupted heart. You were a slave of sin. You were a child of Satan. You were unable to change. You see why the Council of Dort called it total depravity? So then how is it possible for you to be saved? It puts you exactly in the helpless position that you needed to be in? How is it possible to receive the forgiveness of sins from God? Well, the Council of Dort outlined the second point, the you in the flower of salvation tulip, unconditional election. Unconditional election. Verse 13 begins with a contrastive conjunction, but we ought always to give thanks. It points us to a distinction. And that distinction is between the lost and the saved. Where do we see the lost? Look back with me at verse 10. This is a description of the lost. And with all wicked deception for those who were perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved, therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. That's the distinction of the lost But then the saved, the recipients of God's grace. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. God chose them. I don't know how people try to get around the meaning of the word chose. There's only one meaning. God chose them in contrast to sending a strong delusion to the unbeliever in verse 11. Titus 3, 5 says that this choice is not on the basis of good works. God didn't choose those who were going to choose him. God didn't choose those who were acting a little bit better. This is entirely divine initiative. You fulfilled, let me put it this way, you fulfilled no conditions for salvation. This is the only place where Paul uses this particular verb to describe divine election. Elsewhere, in Ephesians 1.5, he uses a word meaning to mark out beforehand. It's a very aggressive word. It's a proactive word. We translate it predestined. In the previous verse, Ephesians 1.4, 
He uses a word meaning to pick or to select for yourself. We translate it chose or elected. If someone says, well, election isn't in the Bible. Actually, the Bible is where we literally get the word election, eklektos. Those who were elect. And it says here in verse 13, God chose. It's a verb form meaning God chose for himself. It doesn't involve anybody else. It's for him. Salvation is taking for himself worshipers. There is no way grammatically or syntactically or contextually to make this passive. There's no possible way. You can't grammatically make this mean that God chose those who would choose him like the Arminians claim. But then there's this interesting phrase here. God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. What does this mean? In the law of Moses... God's people were commanded to present the first part of the harvest at the temple. Exodus 23 says this. This was a a foreshadowing of a later and a a bigger harvest. In 1 Corinthians 15.20, Christ is called the first fruits of the resurrection of the full eschatological end times harvest, so to speak, of all who will be resurrected. And we understand that. And first fruits can also be used to speak of the first converts, the first people to come to Christ. But I would just humbly tell us here that first fruits is one Greek letter off from meaning from the beginning. From the beginning. There are major Greek New Testament manuscripts with both. The translators of the United Bible Society's Greek New Testament, which is kind of the standard for translation today, they preferred first fruits for only one reason. And they have notes that say this. The only reason they put first fruits here instead of from the beginning is because Paul uses the phrase first fruits in six other places. That's a weak reason, though. The idea of first fruits doesn't have any connection to this context. From the beginning has total connection to the context because this is God's choice from when? From the beginning, from eternity past. And in the very same breath, Paul speaks of obtaining the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is where? In the future. This also lines up very nicely with Ephesians 1.4. God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In other words, God's choice had nothing to do with you. Had nothing to do with how kind or smart or receptive or wonderful or self-important or even good-looking that you are. How do we know this? Because according to from the beginning and before the foundation of the world, when God made that choice, you weren't even born. In fact, when God made that choice, the universe wasn't even born. And if we can take it a step further, since we know that God is all-knowing and that God has never learned anything, he's never increased in knowledge ever, then it's very reasonable to assume that the idea of from the beginning and the idea of before the foundation of the world is a human, understandable way to express to our finite minds If I can use a double negative, there was never a time in eternity past that you were not chosen by God. You have always been chosen. What were the elect chosen for? Verse 13, to be saved. The comprehensive plan of God to rescue us from the self-inflicted and the Adam-inherited eternal consequences of sin This is completed in our final homecoming to the Lord, the consummation of our salvation. Now, I want to nail this point home just a little bit more, and I want to give you kind of three important side notes about the doctrine of election. 
First of all, the apostles taught election in a variety of contexts. This isn't just one or two little proof texts here. The apostles taught election in a variety of contexts. For example, among others, other places, the New Testament teaches election in Romans 8, 1 Thessalonians 1, and 1 Peter 2, all in the context of persecution. The authors are giving assurance of God's election and his love in situations where it might be tempting to doubt the security of salvation, to doubt that certainty. As another example, the New Testament teaches election all through Hebrews and in 2 Peter in the context of warning the readers against apostasy, of not coming all the way to Christ. 2 Peter 1.10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. We could go on with other examples of how the apostles taught election in a variety of contexts, but my main point is that election permeates our whole faith. It's not just some little part of being a Christian. It is everything. It's, it's, it's woven into the context of our whole faith. It's the second important side note about the doctrine of election. The doctrine of election is a motivation to evangelism. It's a motivation to evangelism. The Apostle Paul himself showed what the means by which God connects the elect with the gospel is. How does God get the gospel to the ears of the elect? Through prayer. In fact, right here in this text, right after speaking of God's choice of the elect, look at chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. Election reminds the church that evangelism is participation in a God-initiated work. We're guaranteed success that when God connects the gospel with the elect, what happens? Salvation. Every time. How many elect people who have heard the gospel have gotten saved? All of them. Every one of them. One more important side note about election. Election has tremendous benefits for the believer. Tremendous benefits for you. This is not a dry, dusty doctrine. This is life itself. The doctrine of election is so useful. It's useful for our worship. You want to know why? Because it crushes your pride, doesn't it? It crushes your pride. You brought nothing to God except sin. He brought everything, and therefore our worship is elevated. I used to joke that the, the little children's song God is so good, God is so good, that we, if, we're, if we're Arminians, we should sing, and I'm pretty good too, right at the end. <laughs> but no, it's just God is good. You want to give somebody the gospel? God is good, you are bad. What has God done about that? He sent Christ. Oh, it's so useful for your worship. It's useful to understanding the glory of God. You know, Arminians don't preach much on the glory of God because they want some of it for themselves theologically. It also produces joy in us since we rejoice in God and God alone. It's, in, in fact, the doctrine of election is motivation toward holiness. Did you know that? It's motivation to obey Christ. Colossians 3.12 says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, because you are elect. You should put these things on. What, the, what would the Arminians say? In case you might not make it to heaven, you better do those things. Well, the Council of Dort defined total depravity. They defined unconditional election. The third point, the, the L in the flower of salvation, tulip. 
limited atonement. Limited atonement or particular atonement or particular redemption. And you'll see where the word particular comes in in a moment. Limited atonement says that Christ's work on the cross accomplished the atonement of all the elect. That this was not potential payment for sin. It was actual payment for sin. Arminianism would say that Christ's death provided potential payment for all who would eventually choose him. Which, by the way, presents a problem for the Old Testament saint. Uh, That's a whole issue for another time. But this idea that Christ's death provided potential payment has some problems. Well, first of all, it means that theoretically Christ could have died for no one. If no one chose him, if he died for no one in particular, he could have died for nothing. There's another problem. If Christ died to pay the penalty of sin for all humanity, then theoretically he died for people who will be in hell. That's a problem. It means either his death was wasted on them or they're paying a double price since Christ died for them too. Now, to be very, very clear, the doctrine of election does not say that the death of Christ was incapable of saving all of mankind, so God just had to take the ones he could get. It doesn't say that. Was Christ's death capable and enough to pay for the sins of every human being who ever lived? Absolutely. If God had elected all humanity to salvation, but he hasn't. And you ask the question, why? I don't know. Ask him. There is only one reason ever given in Scripture for election. Only one. In Ephesians chapter 1, a little two-word phrase, in love. That's the only reason given. Other than that, we defer to sovereignty. So this is basically the question, limited atonement is, who did Christ come to save? For whom did Christ die? Look at verse 14. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the emphasis here. That you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who is you? Those chosen to be saved. Not everyone. Just you. This little verb, may obtain, this is a noun translated as a verb, and it means for the possession of the glory, that you may get something. It's translated as a verb because it means the act of acquiring or gaining something, and that is the glory of Christ. This doesn't imply human achievement or deeds, but it does imply the willing response of the believing heart to the already enacted divine choice and the empowering by the Spirit to respond to the call of God. So the question is, who did Christ come to save? When Mary was pregnant with Jesus, an angel appeared to Joseph and proclaimed to him in Matthew one twenty one that Mary, quote, will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. This is an already set apart people. Jesus said in Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Not to potentially save, not to hopefully save, but to save. And in fact, Jesus was choosing the particular people already set apart by God. Titus 2.14, Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Who is doing the work of salvation? God is. God is clearly the initiator. Now, the Arminian would argue, I I can't believe in election and certainly not in limited atonement because that means that some people who want to be saved would not be saved because God didn't choose them. 
In other words, they're defending people who wish they could be saved but just aren't chosen. And and I've even heard this enacted. But God, I want to be saved. Will you forgive me? No, I can't forgive you. You're not of the elect. I'm sorry. I would defy you to find one verse in Scripture that proves that that class of person even exists. That class of person does not exist. You know what Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight? He said, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The invitation to salvation is extended to all, but only the elect will desire salvation in the first place. I would draw our attention once again to a key text. You don't have to turn there. It's familiar to you of Romans 9, 22 and 23. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, by the way, let me stop right there. What is one of the ways that God glorifies himself? He demonstrates his wrath. Without those who are not elect, he cannot demonstrate his wrath. But what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which, different phrase, he has prepared beforehand for glory. Vessels of mercy, he prepared beforehand for glory. This is an active verb demonstrating that God alone is responsible. The vessels of wrath, the eternally doomed, are prepared for destruction. This is a passive verb, meaning they prepared the destruction on the basis of their own sin. They've been prepared by their own rebellion, their own responsibility for rebelling against God. And some people use the phrase double predestination, and we don't believe in this, that God somehow chose some to be saved based on His grace, and He chose some to be doomed based on his wrath. That is not entirely the case. God chose the elect based in grace and God chose the reprobate based in their sin and their rebellion and getting what they deserve. The question is not how can God send people to hell? The question is how can God send anyone to heaven? The eminent Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, was an ardent defender of limited atonement. Listen to his account of conversations with Arminian theologians, and this is worth a good listen. He says, quote, and I can't do an English accent, but just picture it. We are often told that we limit the atonement of Christ because we say that Christ has not made satisfaction for all men or all men would be saved. Now, our reply to this is that, on the other hand, our opponents limit it. We do not. The Arminians say Christ died for all men. Ask them what they mean by it. Did Christ die so as to secure the salvation of all men? They answer, no, certainly not. We ask them the next question. Did Christ die so as to secure the salvation of any man in particular? They answer, no. They are obliged to admit this if they are consistent. They say, no, Christ has died that any man may be saved if, and then follow with certain conditions of salvation. Now, who is it that limits the death of Christ? Why, you. You say that Christ did not die so infallibly to secure the salvation of anybody. We beg your pardon. When you say we limit Christ's death, we say, no, my dear sir, it is you who limit it. 
We say Christ so died that he infallibly secured the salvation of a multitude that no man can number, who through Christ's death not only may be saved, but are saved, and cannot by any possibility run the hazard of being anything but saved. And he concludes, you are welcome to your atonement. You may keep it. We will never renounce ours for the sake of it. That's a long quote. Let me put this in easier terms to grasp. In 1963, a theologian named Baitner wrote on the subject of predestination and said this, for the Calvinists, the atonement of Christ, quote, is like a narrow bridge which goes all the way across the stream for the Armenian, it is like a great wide bridge that only goes halfway across. Or to put it as Jesus did in John 10, beginning in verse 14, I am the good shepherd, I know my own, and my own know me. And just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Who does Jesus lay his life down for? The sheep, he says he knows his own. This is advanced, proactive knowledge of whom he has chosen. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, the fourth point in the flower of salvation, irresistible grace. Irresistible grace, how are you saved? The end of verse 13 says, through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Let's take this apart. First of all, the elect are saved through sanctification by the Spirit. This is the setting apart of the elect to be saved. Now, a small problem, the elect don't want to be saved. The elect don't want to be saved because we were spiritually blind, deaf, and mute. Ephesians 2 says we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We've already established total depravity. No unsaved person goes skipping through the park going, I'm of the elect, I'm of the elect, I'm of the elect. How do you know you're of the elect? After you get saved, you learn about it. So what's the answer to this? The fact that the elect don't want to be saved. The Spirit of God sets us apart. Now in this context, Paul isn't using the word sanctification to mean progressive Christ-likeness. He's using it in the sense of being separated out, culled out, set apart. But how does the Holy Spirit set apart those who are spiritually dead? Jesus explained in very simple terms in John 3, 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The Spirit of God sets us apart by giving us new life, what Jesus called being born again. This may be contrary to what some of you have grown up with, but being born again is not something you decide to do. It's something, it's not something that when a preacher begs, you decide, I want to be born again. Can I put it this way? If you decide, I want to be born again, it means you've already been born again. Being born again is solely something the Spirit of God does. It has nothing to do with asking or not asking. The wind blows where it wishes meaning the Spirit regenerates those whom He wishes. This is what Paul spoke of. In Ephesians 2.5, Even while we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This is the Spirit of God transforming you, changing you. And because of regeneration, the second part of the end of verse 13 becomes reality. You're saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief meaning saving faith in the truth. 
because of the regenerating work of the Spirit, now you believe. And the order is everything. The order is critical. The Arminian viewpoint places all glory and responsibility for for salvation on mankind that first you believe and then God responds and regenerates you and turns you into a new creation in Christ. What does that do? That steals glory from God. It steals His glory. The Bible says that the Spirit regenerates you and then you believe. Now, it's been a long-held question How much time is there between regeneration and belief? I don't think the Bible tells us. I tend to think pretty much none. But I have seen people that are beginning to seek the Lord in a way they never have before. That are still unregenerate. That still say, I don't don't want to come to Christ, but I'm intrigued by the idea. I don't know. That's in the mind of God. But regeneration... I think this will be helpful to you. It also carries the idea of authorizing, of permitting something. What exactly is being permitted? What's being authorized? What's being authorized, listen carefully, is that you are allowed to know the truth of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. When the Holy Spirit regenerates, He gives us permission, He gives us ability, He gives us the authorization to understand the things freely given by God. In other words, the spigot of understanding is open and the truth of the gospel gushes into your soul. And suddenly you know God is holy. I'm a depraved sinner. You know that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God who came to earth. He was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. I believe this. I believe he died on the cross to pay for my sin. That he was raised three days later proving that my payment was sufficient. He ascended into heaven where even now he advocates before me with the Father. Now you know the Spirit of God is changing me and I believe what was formerly foolishness to me. And now the Bible begins to come alive as the very living and active double-edged sword that it is, the very word of God, and you can't get enough. You see the disgusting reproach and offense of your own sin, and you believe, and you look back, and you say, how did I not believe? Because your eyes were closed, your ears were stopped, your heart was dull. You have faith. Faith is necessary for salvation. That salvation is by faith, not by any works that we could do, believing that God alone can save me, that, that I can't do a single thing to contribute to my redemption. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. What is? The faith. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. The Arminian says he's thankful to have had the insight to make the choice to come to God. The Calvinist says he is thankful to God for opening his blind eyes and giving him a new heart so that he could believe. The outward call of God to salvation, the proclamation of Christ by men, by the church, this can be resisted and it is all the time because God hasn't given us the privileged information of who is elect and who is not. And so what do we do? We plead and we beg all to come to Christ. But the inward call of God to salvation, this is irresistible. How do we know this? Because it happened before you knew it was happening. Romans 8, 14. All 
who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. The Greek word for all means all. Titus 3, 5, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. 1 Peter 1, 3, This is the nail in this argument. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. He caused it. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, the fifth point in the flower of salvation, the perseverance of the saints. Perseverance of the saints. In verse 15, Paul says, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us. He says, stand firm. This is a a word that means to continue in the state you're in. It means don't move. It means hold on. Hold on to what? He says, hold to the traditions that you were taught. Now, this is not an argument for church tradition being an equal in authority to Scripture. That's a Catholic notion. Paul taught with apostolic authority that doesn't exist today. He would never say that tradition is equal to Scripture. Now that we have a completed Bible, inspired and inerrant, the tradition that Paul is speaking of is held in our hands, isn't it? This is the tradition. Holding to the authority and the veracity of the Scriptures, by the way, is evidence of genuine salvation, a continuing desire to obey the Lord. The doctrine of perseverance says that by God's power, we are enabled to become more and more Christ-like. We're able to resist evil. We're able to do what is good. We're able to remain unconquered. And while perseverance is by the power of God, we are not without responsibility in some mysterious way. We are to heed the warnings of Scripture against falling away. We're to pray in other dependence upon the Lord. We're to struggle against sin. We're to rely on the Holy Spirit. But of course, the obvious flip side to perseverance, what makes perseverance possible, it is the preservation that God promises to the true believer. Verse 16 says, that the Lord Jesus and God our Father, look at this phrase, gave us eternal comfort. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled over, is this comfort about eternity or comfort that is eternal? The simple answer is, it doesn't make any difference. The effect is the same. The possession of the believer that is contrasted with the terrifying guesswork of the unbeliever who has no idea what's going to happen in eternity, our possession is that comfort. 1 John 5, 11 and 12. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. You know, the very next verse. Can you imagine if John had written this? I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may be somewhat certain that you have eternal life. What? Somebody comes to faith and we baptize them and they say, how can I know? Well, I don't really know. You know, we hope for the best. No, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. This is eternal comfort. The grace of God is not just to save us and then let us dangle in emotional and spiritual limbo in some sort of lottery that maybe I can have assurance You have assurance because you've been justified. You've been acquitted of your sin. You've been pronounced as worthy as Christ. 
Some might ask the question, well, maybe there's double jeopardy. Will God go back and review my case? If I continue sinning, will he go back and, and maybe go back on his acquittal? Will I, will I always be justified in the eyes of God? Well, we remember that God exchanges our filthy life for the perfect life of his son and by faith and faith alone we're credited with his perfection. And is this forever? Yes, because of eternal comfort. God will view you the same way he views Christ forever. I can't wrap my mind around that. I'm just saying the words. And what happens because of justification? Why can you be assured? Why will the saints persevere? You have permanent forgiveness of sin. Acts 13.38 says that through Jesus, forgiveness of sin is proclaimed. It's done. Your condemnation is taken away. Taken away. John 5.24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he is passed from death to life. And that's a one-way door. You have the gift of eternal life. Titus 3, 7, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life and God never changes His will. There's reconciliation between you and God. Romans 5, 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You are at peace with the God of all power, the God of all might, and never will there be a moment where you're at war with God again, ever. And you have adoption into God's family. Romans 8.15 says, We receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father, for all eternity you may call God your Daddy, your Abba. And verse 17 says that now we're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. No one can take that away. Listen, you didn't work your way into salvation and you can't sin your way out of it. God can give eternal comfort because we're eternally justified. I love the imagery of 2 Corinthians 2.14. It's a beautiful picture. You don't have to turn there, but it's a unique picture where Christians are said to spread, quote, the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ everywhere. Can I stretch that metaphor just a little bit? and suggest that one of the sources of that fragrance of Christ comes from a tulip. It comes from the flower of salvation. That beautiful explanation of the gospel, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. The inward call. The Spirit of God reaching out to you is irresistible. The outward call, the pleading of the gospel is resistible. It's not our place to know the elect. I can't know that. It is just to give the gospel to all and to remind you that Jesus said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. We cannot give the inward call. Only Christ, only the Spirit can do that. But we can give the outward call. What a shame it would be to stand at the great white throne judgment and have the Lord Jesus Christ say, you were at Grace Bible Church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and you faked it. You even figured out the right words to say to fill out a membership application and fool the elders. Why did you not submit and pay for that for all eternity? 
instead of taking one minute to say, I've been a fake and I'm coming to Christ because I want to be saved. Let it never be said that you were ashamed to say, I've been a longtime member at Grace Bible Church, but I think I have not believed the gospel. I have a dear, sweet friend in the ministry who was a pastor for some 20 years before his wife admitted that she had been faking it for 20 years. The way she admitted it was she got saved. And praise God for that. I can't give the inward call, but I can give the outward call that you believe this day. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for that fragrant flower, the tulip of salvation. We praise you and thank you that you have called us according to your will. We thank you for the mystery that surrounds salvation, Lord, that we can't know the basis of your choice, but we do know what it's not. It's not our merits. 1 Corinthians 1 says that you seem to have chosen the the worst of the worst to be saved. You've chosen the least likely. You've chosen those that the world would say never. Yet the church is made up of not many noble, not many wise. We're the cast outs. We're the off-putting ones. We're the oddballs. We're the weird ones. We're the most sinful of the most sinful. The Apostle Paul called himself the chief of all sinners. And yet you chose us. Eternity will not be long enough to express our gratitude. But we do thank you and we praise you and we look forward to doing so forever and ever. And we pray in Christ's name and for his sake and for his glory. Amen.